Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At the Democracy Summit, they're basically uh, selling off their cobalt and losing the rights over it. It's just like what the whites did to the native Indians and what the European did when they came originally to Africa, is that they took control of their whole economy. Monica Perez with our favorite returning guest, Jeremy Kuzmarov, author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce. He is the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine, and he and his team keep us apprised of the real stories behind the biggest events of the day. And as much as I respect Jeremy and his work, our ideologies are completely different. Jeremy thinks government's legit, and I've given up on the state completely. But in a post-ideological world of corruption and collusion, people of principle can still find common ground, and that's what I look for with Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? And thank you for being here. Good. Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, it's great to be with you as usual. I was really, I thought it was a strange coincidence and a very interesting one that your two of your most recent articles were about Africa, AFRICOM, um, Libya, and happened to be one year ago today, or, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, on April 11th, 2022, I did a deep dive, a short one, like 10 minutes on this weird uh, coincidence, say, of African countries that had uh, U.S., government, or maybe even CIA, but definitely U.S. military, special operations, stuff like that, training their soldiers only to find, the U.S. said to their surprise, that some of these soldiers instituted coups against their own governments, even sometimes while U.S. special forces were on the ground, just shocked, shocked at what was happening at the Capitol. So I don't know if you um, got a chance to listen to that, just a short little thing. I'll put it in the show notes for people who haven't. But what you're talking about seems to draw directly from our involvement there and how we're uh, training those soldiers. And you added the wrinkle of why, which seems to be, of course, what else is new, Africa's rich mineral resources. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Kwame Nkrumah was the, um, you know, he was voted Africa's man of the millennium. And he was the first president of Ghana from 19... 57 to 1965 and he was overthrown in the cia coup and he you know he warned about what's going on today uh, and you know he wrote a prescient book called neocolonialism the last stage of imperialism and he warned that you know formal colonialism might end but the you know western powers would come back you know, they, they want that mineral wealth they want to exploit and divide the continent and that's why he was promoting pan-african unity and the idea of the you know, united states of africa that needed to develop an all-African uh, military and, and police force to protect uh, the continent from uh, foreign aggression. And, you know, this is his worst nightmare, to have the United States, the heir of the European colonial powers, 
uh, in Africa and almost every African country training the local forces. And yeah, you get what, what you described, coups. I think uh, Nick Turst did a report and he found at least eight or nine coups by AFRICOM trained soldiers. And that's one of the things you know, the crew were warned about. It would foment instability and coup d'etat. And that's why they need an African-controlled force uh, that was there to really protect the interests uh, of the continent and, and different countries instead of a foreign power training forces who can carry out a coup and then run the country more along the interests of Western Westerners. I remember noticing this. Uh, there was some tension against AFRICOM. I don't know if it's moved to the continent, but AFRICOM, the African command of, I think it's the U.S. Is it NATO or is it the U.S.? AFRICOM is the U.S., right? It's U.S., yeah. So I remember that its center, its headquarters weren't, wasn't even actually on the African continent. Like that was something that it took them a while to, to get. And I wondered, I had wondered along the way, maybe 10 years ago, if that was a reason why, um, Ebola was happening. There was a lot of so sort of manipulation around the Ebola story. And I wondered if it was trying to get AFRICOM onto that continent, but that AFRICOM has been something they've been working against resistance among some African, you know, I don't know if they're protesters or what, but they're not everybody's on board with this. And it, it seems to me what you're saying is that AFRICOM being, you know, a unified uh, military entity in Africa, but by an imperial power. So it's the exact opposite of what Gaddafi was trying to do with Pan-Africanism or Nkrumah. Is that how you pronounce the Ghanaian's yeah, name? Yeah, Nkrumah. Yeah, he was Ghana's yeah. leader uh, from 1957 to 1965. And he really articulated Pan-African ideals. You know, he was, there were, I believe he was part of a Pan-African Congress. You know, he lived in, in exile and diaspora for many years. And he was part of a network of anti-colonial activists like W.E.B. Du Bois was an American who was part of that network. And actually, Du Bois ended up in Ghana because he was a victim of McCarthyism in the United States. Uh, you know, he, uh, du Bois had helped found the NAACP. And then in the, you know, he, he started developing more uh, a strong critique of U.S. imperialism, uh, with promoting more socialist ideals. And he was attacked under McCarthyism. And was kind of became a pariah, so he ended up migrating. Once uh, Nkrumah became the president of Ghana, uh, uh, Du Bois spent, I believe, his last decade in Ghana, and he was working on African encyclopedias and uh, writings about Africa. But he was part of that that network yeah, that had promoted these ideals in the 30s, 40s, and that yeah, once they would overthrow the colonial system, uh, they needed to unify the African continent. And I think those ideas were picked up by uh, certain leaders like Nyerere of Tanzania, as well as Gaddafi, who oriented more to Africa in the last several decades uh, of his leadership in Libya. And I think he refused to have AFRICOM in Libya's head, uh, in Libya, uh, to have the AFRICOM <laughs> headquarters there. That's why they had to move to Germany. <laughs> the headquarters were set up in Germany because he refused it. But that was probably one of the main motives as to why U.S. and NATO participated in the regime change operation to overthrow Gaddafi in 2011 because that was a barrier to their goal of, you know, carving up the African continent and, and blocking the, the revitalization of Pan-African ideals. And, you know, Gaddafi had invested a lot of Libya's oil wealth in industrial projects in Africa and development. And that was part of uh, Nkrumah's idea that 
uh, a, a socialist government where the government takes control of the uh, major industries and use that to finance uh, economic improvements and development. A few things there. One is, I was a little disturbed to see a picture in your article on this in Covert Action Magazine, that uh, .com, that Nkrumah had, uh, had admired Mao. And for me, like I think of Mao as having killed or been responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of Chinese in the, quote, great leap forward. And uh, so when I see these anti-imperialists, it always disappoints me that they end up being pro-communist. I feel like there should be, uh, you know, you can separate the the alternatives. Like, you could just be pro-liberty. However, I will say, I try to... You know, I'm such a libertarian. I've had such free market training, and that's just the way my brain is. But with Libya, I think you know, he, Libya Gaddafi was demonized, but he did do. I mean, by nationalizing the oil, and because it's such valuable oil, and using that for socialist policies that help the people. I mean, it just upsets me to even think about it. And I want to say, oh, yeah, he probably just skimmed 90% off the top, but that might be actually less than his predecessor did. I don't know. But I just, it's hard for me to celebrate these guys who move towards an ideology that I think is equally susceptible to corruption. I mean, how do you feel like Nkrumah, uh, no, Nkrumah uh, liking Mao? I mean, help me deal with that. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, I mean, if you look at it from, from their point of view, from the point of view of countries that experience colonialism, uh, they would equate, you know, capitalism with colonialism, uh, that it was the imperative of the capitalist system and the drive for, uh, for wealth and profit and the exploitation of the mineral wealth, uh, the economy of the global south uh, that resulted in uh, underdevelopment and huge uh, global inequality and exploitation and subordination of their country. So I think the first generation of anti-colonial leaders uh, embrace a socialist model of governance that they had to expel the colonizer and then they had to set up an economic system uh, where the government could control the, where the, you know, I mean, they had to set up barriers to renewed exploitation because that's what the Krumah warned about in, neo uh, in his book, Neocolonialism, Last Stage of Imperialism. Uh, so, you know, if capitalism endured, those uh, multinational corporations were still intent on exploiting the natural resources and dominating their economy. So they, uh, governments, you know, used different formulas. Some adopted high tariff level, and that, that was a formula that the United States adopted because the United States had a share of colonial history uh, with a lot of other countries, you know, these countries. And the U.S. had the same policy in the 19th century when they gained their liberation from Great Britain. They put up high tariff wall uh, so that, uh, you know, heavy taxes to uh, basically uh, subsidize or encourage local industrial development. And that's how the U.S. economy boomed in the 19th century uh, through those ta uh, tariffs. And that would be, you know, policy called import substitution uh, that was adopted by many developing world countries. Uh, but yeah, more, I guess, radical approach was to nationalize the industry because they had the problem that the foreigner, even after the colonial system was abolished, you still had foreign ownership. You know, a lot of these economies were mobilized based on certain key resources. Gannett was cocoa, 
Uh, other country like uh, Zambia, I discussed in that article, was copper, copper mining. So the owners of the mines were all foreign corporations, So, uh, and they paid very little if no taxes. So, I mean, there are various formula. They could expand the taxes that they had to pay, but like Gaddafi and Nkrumah promoted a nationalization policy, or Iran under most of you know, Iran and oil, they had the same problem that these uh, foreign uh, multinational corporations own their oil. So the solution for them was to place it under national control and then uh, finally they could benefit. You know, the revenue would go. It was a government-owned company, and so they have all the revenue that they could develop the economy, build uh, schools, build roads, uh, finance a decent healthcare system. So that was the model they adopted, and it was pretty popular and had some successes. Yeah, it had some failings as far as corruption. Yeah, I, I agree that. Uh, under that uh, model of government, there are a lot of opportunity for corruption, uh, although that could be true, I think, in any system of government. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, for them, that made the most sense. I mean, that, that was the, the way to assert their economic sovereignty and, and development. And China was a model under the Maoists because, you know, China had a civil war uh, with the Maoists were fighting, you know, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists in the 40s, 30s and 40s. But Chiang Kai-shek you know, was extremely corrupt, and you know China had a shared colonial history, uh, just like Africa, because uh, China wasn't formally colonized, but it was basically a neo-colony of Great Britain, you know, following the Opium Wars, because uh, Britain had tried to you know dump all this opium and was flooding the country with opium, or the Chinese tried to resist, so it led to the Opium Wars, and Britain won the war and imposed all these unfair treaties on China. And even British citizens had special rights, and they couldn't be uh, tried in local courts. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was China's century of humiliation. And, I mean, look at China today. You know, in the 19th century, yeah, they were humiliated. You know, and this is a traditionally very strong power uh, that was dominant in Southeast Asia. Very proud people are humiliated in the 19th century. Uh, in the 21st century, I mean, China is emerging under, uh, you know, it's been... Uh, the, the Maoist triumph in 1949, so we're, what, 60, 70 years into the Chinese Communist era. And look at China today. Its uh, its economy is booming. Uh, it's evolving more into a world power. I, I think its its economic growth has surpassed the United States, uh, becoming more influential in, in Southeast Asia. Through the One Belt, One Road initiative, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's promoting economic development in many different countries. So, a Chinese, I think Chinese see themselves part of a resurgence, and, and they're, you know, I mean, that, that sustained the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party because they've catapulted their country from a century of humiliation to now a country that's really rivaling or even eclipsing the United States economically and, may, you know, has evolved as perhaps among the dominant countries in the world and dominant economies. So uh, the Maoist uh, revolution catapulted that process forward that was a major turning point in, in modern Chinese history that would be celebrated just like the 4th of July uh, here in the United States because it, it overthrew a neo-colonial uh, corrupt uh, regime and um, the Maoists had uh, promoted a program of agrarian uh, development and reform in the countryside The because uh, they won support of a lot of the Chinese peasantry at that time um, 
so yeah, I mean, there were a lot of uh, abuses that went on, abuse of power and atrocities all on the way, and it wasn't a clean uh, revolution. Uh, very few revolutions in history were ever clean. So, um, but if you look at the big picture, and then also in Africa, like uh, Mao was very supportive of anti-colonial movements, and Mao supported uh, Ghana as the, was the first country because. There was kind of a shared history of fighting imperialism and colonialism, so there was a natural affinity. And the Chinese did sponsor a lot of development projects in the cold uh, in various African countries. Like I was in uh, Zambia, and um, the Chinese supported the Tanzam Railway, which is still a functioning railway between Zambia and Tanzania, and that was built by the Chinese in the Maoist period. So they, they were investing in the economic development and they were supporting anti-colonial and socialist regime that had been anti-colonial. A lot of the first generation African uh, uh, regime that, that uh, were uh, independent were socialists. And so there was a close alliance with Maoist China and they may have been supporting guerrilla uh, warfare because the, the Maoists adopted a formula of guerrilla warfare uh, to fight imperialist powers. And they had a strategy for how poor nations could defeat uh, rich imperialist countries. And so they provided some military uh, training and uh, guerrilla training to these countries that were fighting against colonial powers. Or, you know, Nkrumah was supporting, like, because uh, when he came to power, there were still many anti colonial uh, uh, revolutionary struggles going on, like, including against the Portuguese. So he was supporting, like, freedom fighters in Mozambique and they would come for training in Ghana, and I think there were some Chinese advisors there to you know, promote the uh, Chinese model of guerrilla warfare uh, as to how they fought Chiang Kai-shek and the National. Because don't forget, the U.S. provided Chiang Kai-shek with over $2 billion and was heavily subsidizing Chiang Kai-shek to prevent, try and block the communists from coming to power in China. So, um, yeah, so they, they were, I guess... You know, heroes kind of okay so i i always have like super deep state thoughts like wasn't mao like western trained and had a yell stint and you can address that if you want but i want to just talk a little bit you know a lot of what you said a lot and it stimulates some thought which is you just ideologically i you know, like I say, I'm just, I'm trying to open my mind to this. I'm a little bit black and white on the libertarian stuff, but it seems to me that like I was taught free trade. I remember when I showed up to Harvard, which my father thought, like I, I transferred from community college to Harvard as a junior. And my father was like disappointed because he was a real libertarian like, truck driver. And he's like, you're going to come out a socialist. And I show up and they start teaching me. So I took economics and they started teaching me about free trade. Like they were all about free trade, which is also what my father taught me. And I remember thinking like, this is so surprising. And I realize now, like, I don't, I don't think of it in those terms anymore. I think of it as uh, sometimes the, what they're teaching us about free trade is really, they're going to give me the, the libertarian rationale, the economic rationale, which I accept. But sometimes it's just a euphemism for mercantilism or, you know, they don't want free trade if it's going to backfire on them. They want it only when they can, um, if they, in, in that idea, like you are going to, the more developed country is going to be able to choose what it imports, what it exports into this other country. And it, it is even John Coleman, who's this, he wrote committee of 300, who's is like super anti 
uh, communism, he says, like, it, we're taking the wrong path thinking that you don't have to protect trade in a nascent country. And it seems to me that even though these guys are socialists and communism tends to be like the international feel, they were in a way nationalists. And even, even the fascism, which is nationalist, does combine like corporate and, and, um, governmental entities, maybe in different ways and under different guises, but, it is it is a nationalistic viewpoint that may, whether it works or not, be implemented in good faith. And I have to say, if you look at China, granted, like you can go down the rabbit hole and see who's helped them in the Rockefeller history there and maybe competing factions. But the reality is, and I think you can see this all around the world, I think we've reached a technological advancement that where no matter what your ideology, whether it's perfectly economical or or not, you can feed everybody, you know, so if they want to feed everybody, even though it's incredibly inefficient to have a socialist government, it's maybe better than, than, you know, what England did to Ireland, like export all the food to a third country. Like you can, even if it's not efficient, if it's done in good faith, it can be superior. And, uh, and I would just say that the, you know, it looks like China, yeah, they, they have absolutely, succeeded and you know economically and we haven't and i just i just you know the, the ideology i think is peddled to us to justify to pick and choose what policies to um support and they we are taught free trade but i think really it's more like mercantilism like my idea of capitalism isn't the great servando gonzalez's like my, um that he wrote in psychological warfare in the new world order he was a cuban guy he said, it's not, capitalism isn't mom and pop entrepreneurship. It's really corporatism. It's really imperialism. Um, and I just, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to rethink these things and be sympathetic. But I think that there's a lot of evidence on your side that like the better thing to do for a country or even a region that is, um, fears, imperialist action on a large scale, you have to have some kind of what would be considered non-free market, non-libertarian policies. It just isn't going to shake out for you if you're, if you lay yourself bare. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, for them, if, you know, they have to develop their local industry. I mean, part of the problem, they, they, they have a dependency on usually one cash crop because the colonial system was set up to extract uh, you know, economic resource and their whole economy was set up in a way to benefit the mother country. Uh, so the only way to get around that is to do is that formula, either a very high tariff wall, uh, and you'd have to, you know, enhance your tax revenue, and that would have to be done either through higher taxation or the industry you have, state control industry, uh, so you can finance your industrialization. And that's the only way that you could ultimately be uh, more successful economically and competitive in any way in the global economy. So I think that formula was adopted by many countries, yeah, including like North Korea. And I think it's somewhat misunderstood in, in the U.S. because it's just labeled as communist. And some of those regimes are not outright communist. And Nkrumah was not a communist. You know, they, he didn't rule in the Marxist-Leninist uh, way, you know, as far as one party, one communist party. Uh, but I think here the discourse had very narrow and limiting, and you had the you know, phenomenon of McCarthyism that these kind of regimes are labeled as communists, 
and you know, communism and uh, communism and socialism is denounced and seen as something evil, and it lends support to U.S. Uh, foreign policy efforts, often to overthrow these governments or isolate them or or demonize them, uh, and that served the objective of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. capitalist elites. Uh, so. Uh, and, you know, we have features of socialism in our system. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. And, and some countries may be a hybrid. I mean, China today is really a hybrid system. So uh, it's not pure ca- uh, communism or, or socialism in any way. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. You have to try and look at it from their point of view. And uh, those models may make more sense at certain you know points of time uh, in, the, in those nations. So let's fast forward to now and take Zambia as an example, which was in your article and sounds like you have some firsthand experience there. Now we're kind of back to the beginning where we're it's not even about industrializing them. It's about taking the mineral resources and that they have strong men who in many cases seem to have been installed by U.S backed coups, although they, the U.S. will deny it despite all circumstantial evidence pointing to U.S. involvement. And and like you, you gave an example of Zambia signing away copper and cobalt rights to the U.S. And I feel like how even, I mean, that, I assume that, I mean, you said they would not benefit from this incredibly high demand for copper in the kind of you know, electronic age, whatever, EV, electronic vehicles and all that, electric vehicles. Um, And so, uh, you know, it's hard. Is the point for those people, uh, the people who live there, the citizens of those countries, are they doomed to just permanent poverty? I also have done stories on the food shortages, food crises. It seems like the, the same strategy is always at work with Africa is like to get them to have a tremendous amount of debt and then but just for food they will trade away things like mineral rights trade away things that they they just always seem to not get fair market value for the stuff they're trading and it's because right. the guys in charge are doing our bidding not theirs that doesn't seem to have changed unfortunately yeah that's the case and um you know for various reasons they're not there's not a strong, you know, grassroots uh, social and popular movements that could propel forward more progressive governments uh, in their country. Like even things like, uh, you know, in Zambia, I mean, it's a situation where the the these foreign companies, and some of them are Chinese, some of them are Indian. There's, you know, as far as their copper, because I yeah I, I did spend some time there, and uh, so I uh, you know. Yeah, there's some Canadian company, American. I mean, it's a lot of foreign ownership. I mean, the, the copper mines are basically owned by foreign interests, and they, they the foreign companies pay almost no taxes because of corruption. Uh, they buy off officials. So, I mean, in their case, a starting point uh, would be just to raise the taxes uh, to a significant level so the Zambian government had more revenue that they could finance uh, you know, better health system, finance, better education, better road networks for the common people, better transportation, uh, better, you know, social services in general. So, but uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's just that there's so much corruption. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, there's, you know, a lot of people are uneducated. I mean, the literacy and education levels are not that high. And that, I mean, that's important for developing a social movement. I mean, people have to have a certain 
political consciousness uh, and direction and, and organization. I mean, we have those problems in our country too. We have so many problems and people are not organized into effective uh, bodies that can challenge the power that be. And I, I, I think that's true in Africa as well. So you just see kind of stasis where you have these corrupt governments without a good vision for you know, uh, bringing progress to their country, but you don't see effective uh, challenge. And then when you had like in Zimbabwe, neighboring Zimbabwe, you know, Robert Mugabe was more of a socialist <coughs> who was inspired by, you know, Nkrumah and had African ideal. And then, but when he moved to try and return the land to the blacks, that's when the U.S. imposed uh, these devastating sanctions on Zimbabwe. And that really devastated their economy because the yes. Zimbabwe was actually doing pretty well. And that's the other danger is that the imperial power, like the United States, have many tools at their disposal. So if a government emerges that is uh, more in the interest of the local population, uh, they could easily be sabotaged just through sanctions. And that's what the U.S. did with Zimbabwe, and it caused a massive hyperinflation and, and disaster. And, and Zimbabwe had actually been doing quite well. Like when I was in Zimba Zambia, they talked about how rich the capital Harare was like in the 80s. And after Zimbabwe got its independence, they had been in southern Rhodesia. The economy was actually doing very well under, under Mugabe's leadership, and there were a lot of wealth. And a lot of Zambians would go there. But then once this, once Mugabe uh, instituted this land reform and they took retrib retribution against him, the economy basically collapsed and there massive hyperinflation. And a lot of that, I mean, there were some internal you know, mismanagement, but a lot of it had to do with these sanctions that were very cruel. Uh, so the, the uh, U.S. or other Western countries couldn't do that. I mean, they tried to punish Libya for many years because of Gaddafi's policies and ultimately removed him. And look, Libya is a mess today in chaos. Yes, so the let's West talk about Libya. That, and that again points to the Krumah's vision of why these uh, countries, you needed revolution in, in many countries and they had to unify to present a strong united front against the West, which would come uh, to destroy them. And China, to some, I mean, China has its own interests at play in Africa and exploits the mineral wealth also, but it does invest a lot in infrastructure. That's why the Chinese, are, they're a little more mixed feeling about the Chinese among Africans from my uh, experience and, and observation, just because they do invest more in the infrastructure and in uh, uh, some initiative that benefit the local population, but they still do have very exploitative practices. And ideally, yeah, the, I think the African understand, ideally, they have to take back the continent for themselves, but they're not right now really in a position to do that. And part of it is balkanization, and, and, you know, and, and foreign intervention can also aggravate ethnic divisions. We've seen that like in Rwanda and Congo, and those countries which are a mess, some of the richest countries in the world, especially Congo, as far as mineral wealth, but... They're just, uh, it's been carved up and, and it's been civil war for years and it's in, you know, very bad shape. So let's talk about Libya. And I will say, I, this is one of those, like the coup in Ukraine I covered extensively when I had a radio show and was more active on my blog, 
was there was a hidden audio. These smoking guns really drive me crazy because they just don't get enough press. But there was hidden audio that was taken off of the phone of Dennis Kucinich when he was a sitting congressman. And he said he did not know where it came from. But for me, it sounded like his phone was tapped because his end of the line was crystal clear. And the other end of the line did sound like the international portion of the call. And that was Islam. It was... um I think it was Saif al-Islam. So Gaddafi has two sons named, had two sons named Saif, and one of them is Saif al-Islam, who was the heir apparent. He was um, a friend of the Rothschild, of a Rothschild. He went to, I think he went to LSE, London School of Economics. The only picture I ever saw of him was in a tuxedo with the Rothschild guy. And he called Kucinich and said, it's unbelievable. There are these like outside terrorists cutting people's heads off and putting videos and making it look like that's us. We would never do that. Our, our, these are there's no uprising here. It's just this weird little pocket of terrorism that are all outsiders, and we depend on the U.S. to to uh, as our allies to make clear that this is not us. And then Kucinich was shocked, and he was responding. And then not too long after that, I mean maybe not a couple of weeks later, but not that long after that, uh, Hillary and that gang refused to take a call. Gaddafi was ready to completely abdicate. He just wanted an orderly transition of power to any Libyan entity, the military, whatever. He was just like, we have to do this in orderly fashion, otherwise it'll descend into chaos. And uh, from my research at the time, which I think was not in dispute, she said no. And he, uh, so she wouldn't even speak to him. Then he was publicly uh, scalped and murdered using CIA uh, intel, from what I understand. She cackled. We, we came, we saw he died. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. And over time, I, I, in my research, I have found not only was, you know, Gaddafi just a threat, and that was the reason that I would say that we took him out, but even uh, the Lockerbie thing was absolutely um, like a false flag or a setup against Libya. I have some details about like the um, Iranian guy, Rouhani. He got his PhD in Glasgow. Uh, his thesis advisor in turn had a thesis advisor named John Grant who was had established something called the Lockerbie trial um, uh unit exclamation explanation you know i forget what it was but it was um it was a he was responsible for telling the west what the lockerbie thing was all about from the university of glasgow somebody on his team was outed as an mi6 agent like this stuff clearly came from intelligence and was used to justify our attacks on Qaddafi. but i think there was more than that wasn't the only false flag against Qaddafi in it. And the more I look into him, the more he did seem to be sincerely in favor of pan-Africanism and, you know, kind of a straight shooter who was a Libyan, you know, loyalist. Yeah, I, that's, I agree with your analysis. Um, yeah, a number of elements there I can comment on. Uh, yeah, one as far as, yeah, there are ample opportunities for peace. Uh, and I mean, clearly they, they wanted him removed. Uh, I mean, from what, my understanding, even uh, one of Obama's alleged half-brothers uh, was willing to be an intermediary, uh, had some connections. And yeah, there were just many opportunities for uh, diplomatic solution. In fact, they were 
I mean, they were playing up these atrocities that never took place. I mean, it was an armed uprising from the beginning in Benghazi against Gaddafi. Uh, Benghazi was a headquarter. It was a center for Islamic. You know, a lot of the resistance to Gaddafi's uh, regime had been Islamists. And Benghazi was a center of the Islamist movement, uh, Islamist opposition, and Al-Qaeda headquarters uh, in Libya. And it was a violent uprising against him, like in Syria. And they were claiming, you know, he was the one carrying out genocide when he was facing a violent uprising. And there were never documented massacres. Uh, this was all just kind of made up. And, you know, this was really like the, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or the Gulf of Tonkin, where it was just a uh, false pretext and lies that led to this basically gangster action. And, I mean, yeah, you know, can assess Gaddafi however you want. I mean, he has perhaps some authoritarian side to him and, uh, you know, was not perfectly... What are you going to do? <laughs> but, I mean, Libya, he came to power, I mean... Uh, when he came to power in 69, you know, Libya was just a complete banana republic. His predecessor, King Idris, was uh, just like a, t a tool of the Western countries. And he had left, you know, Libya was was ex just uh, totally impoverished under his rule. And it was just, you know, narrow clique that, uh, I mean, he was a king. He, he lived in the palace and he lived the high life. And, the re you know, the rest of the population lived in poverty and misery. And there was something like, from what I heard, because I... Uh, did my article about the sanctions on Libya, and they were saying, I don't know if this statistic is true, but one of the Libyan speakers said there were only six doctors in the entire country under King Idris. Uh, so, and life expectancy, I know, was, was very low, and then could, and they were just selling out the oil revenues. Uh, so, I mean, that was Gaddafi's formula. When he came in in 69, he nationalized the oil, and started to invest, and that, that brought a lot of wealth to, to Libya uh, that stayed in the country, and he could develop the economy, he could invest in the health system and education, and from my understanding, he had an excellent health system, uh, excellent education. In fact, Libyans were encouraged to study abroad and come back, and I think a lot of their education was paid for uh, by the government, and um, so in many ways, it was a very enlightened government, and he was, uh, yeah, you know, he'd been a Pan-Arabist and he supported the Palestinian cause, but he moved towards uh, supporting more Pan-Africanism Pan the last two decades. Uh, so, and then with I the, yeah, um, yeah, you said about the Lockerbie, uh, that, that airline, uh, yeah, I think they, they, you know, Gaddafi was like the whip, I mean, if you study this stuff, you see how the U.S. just creates these artificial demons, you know, whether it's, uh, Fidel Castro, Kim Il-sung, Gaddafi, uh, Saddam Hussein, Putin. And it's just, you know, they accuse them of things that they're never guilty for to make them look like they're evil and terrorists. And, you know, they accuse Gaddafi of, a, of bombing a Berlin discotheque. And that was never proven. In fact, there were a CIA provocateur in the group that carried out this bombing and it was never linked directly to Libya uh, after the court cases, the the, the evidence was was uh, there was no uh, evidence to pass muster in court. And it's the same with this Lockerbie; it was like a setup, um, and it was just you know cause the U.S. had bombed uh, uh, in the '80s. The Reagan administration bombed uh, Libya, so there was a regime yeah. change operation for many years because Gaddafi was too defiant of the West and independent for their liking. 
And he, well, he had it, a problem. Yeah. In the early 2000s, he tried to accommodate the West, and he sold off a lot of the oil. And he even, uh, his mistake was to uh, not pursue a nuclear program. He made some agreement that he wouldn't pursue nuclear weapons. And if he had nuclear weapon, they probably wouldn't have done what they did in 2011. So that, that was a mistake from his point of view. So a few things. Um, one is I remember, I don't know if this was, if I'm paraphrasing something he said at one time or over time, but it was basically, I keep the Africans in and the terrorists out. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, like he was doing a favor. Yeah. And, and Assad said the same thing. He's like, I keep... I am, you know, après moi la deluge. Like I am the the thin Arab line between Europe and whatever it is that you that is going to come over. That those, you know, they would put people in. I mean, this is another thing that makes me crazy. It's like our government, our propaganda will tell us that we that the justification for us taking action, like in a place like Syria, is that this guy doesn't recognize people's civil rights, same thing in Egypt. They put people in jail for no good reason. Then we go in there, we bomb the crap out of them, their their prison doors open, spreads terrorism uh, or refugees or whatever, like wildfire around the world. And then we say we have to pull back on our civil rights because now we have a terrorism problem. Yeah. Like, well, if that's what their solution, you know, why don't you just leave it there? Because it's all crap. They don't care about that at all. But that was part one of the Qaddafi things um i did hear something about like he just his last draw with Qaddafi was that he um something about chevron i don't know if there was they owed you know they uh, there was some like like lockerbie lockerbie i think if i understand correctly it was kind of like the church committee like there was a subsequent trial that made it pretty clear that that libya had nothing to do with lockerbie i think there might have been some kind of um payment liability payment due Libya from Chevron I don't know if it was related to Lockerbie or what and like that was kind of the last straw uh but I think from your article I uh perhaps the pan-African currency may have been the last straw for him he did that that was a real plan I believe so yeah he was working toward an alternative currency and that's uh, exactly the kind of thing Nkrumah was advocating for and yeah, I think you can combine all these things together. I mean, they, yeah, they had wanted to get uh, remove him for many years. They they imposed sanctions. Yeah, like I attended this uh, conference on sanctions, and there were a lot of Libyan speakers, and they made the point that the sanctions came in right after. You know, he came in in '69, and the U.S. began applying sanctions under Nixon in '71, and then you know Reagan tried to bomb him, and then they and that had been set up. They started like encircling Libya militarily, and they were, I think, funding some of the Islamic opposition elements to him. And uh, then, you know, Reagan bombed uh, him in 1986. So it was killed his baby. Yeah, Remember, killed... he killed his baby. Yeah, exactly. So this has been going on for years. Yeah, I think it was planned for years. And I mean, I don't know what the final straw was, but yeah, you combine all these things together and they finally were able to achieve their long goal, goal. and look what it turned into. It led to the empowerment of Al-Qaeda, the return of slavery to Libya, just complete chaos, uh, huge migration into Europe, uh, alarm you know, Europeans, uh, just an utter mess, you know, civil war and a disaster for the people, so... These, these operations just, I mean, don't work. You know, not that the intentions are good, 
but if but they just don't work. It just creates uh, other chaos uh, and, and misery for the population. And and they can't restore democracy, according to your article, which I absolutely believe, because Saif Al Islam would probably win. And boy, that guy! I think they like cut his fingers off. He was in some kind of prison for a while. I mean, to think how mighty you know, how he has fallen. And I feel like he continues to exhibit good character, but I could be wrong about that. I haven't, I haven't caught up on his story in years, but I remember at the time I felt he was, he was authentic. Yeah. I mean, it goes to show, yeah, because the the U.S. couldn't allow that because it would show that that whole war was a complete fraud, that democracy would bring the Gaddafi family and that Gaddafi was actually popular in Libya because he had done, you know, I mean, he's kind of like the George Washington of their country. And, I mean, the country uh, flourished in many ways under him. And without him, it's other catastrophe. So, uh, you know, Gaddafi name is actually very good. As much as it was demonized in the United States, it's a name that's very good and uh, that, that did you know, great things for Libya. And that's what they want to go back to, continue those kind of policies under his son, and I guess Americans can't fathom that because of the years of propaganda against Gaddafi that associates him with terrorism and all kind of evil things, but uh, again, from a Libyan point of view, yeah, and sometimes, I mean, in some of those countries, you might require a stronger uh, leader, uh, so there are going to be some you know, abuse of human rights, but they're willing to tolerate that for the stability and, and development and progress of the country, and you have a similar thing with Assad, and Syria. I mean, he's an authentic Syrian uh, who saved the country from the Islamic terrorists. So you can say with him what we will, and there is a dark side, but uh, the calculation of the people is that first and foremost, we need stability on this kind of world, and we need a leader who will protect us from outside predatory interests and run the economy in a way uh, that that will benefit the, the people and the money will stay in the country and the wealth will be owned by Syrian or Libyan. So that's the first thing they need. So uh, I noticed that you, I hadn't heard this operation. I forgot about it, I guess, because I'm sure it wasn't secret operation Odyssey Dawn. Like we had an operation to take out Gaddafi and I feel like the evidence to justify our action there was so weak. It was just those skirmishes, which uh, Saif said were by foreigners and, um, you know, designed for world war worldwide propaganda in um, YouTube videos and stuff. Really, it was really really horrible. But uh, there were other other uh, one thing that I noticed in um, the article. I think it was the first art or the most recent article that you wrote about Africa, about Nkrumah rolling over in his grave. Was that it shows a picture of Kamala Harris in Zambia. And you pointed out that her grandfather had been an advisor to them in, you know, way back when. And, um, you know, my it's I'm starting to think so we don't see we don't hear much about Kamala Harris. I don't think she's super like, uh, you know, dynamic, charismatic for as a domestic politician. However, I have seen her a lot of times when I dig into these foreign issues that she's there on the ground. And I feel like, uh, you know, they're exploiting her. I, I would call her like a, not a person of color, but a puppet of color in that 
they use her as if it's kind of like the way they used Obama to to give people a false sense of security that this is somebody who would naturally be on your side. Actually, Stacey Abrams said that once. You can tell by looking at me that you can trust me. It's like, what does that mean? And I and I see her absolutely betraying even her own father and and grandfather for the colonial movement. Yeah, I think that's a good parallel with Obama because he and I, uh, my book, Obama's Unending War, had a chapter on Africa and how he basically presided over the recolonization of Africa. And, you know, he ramped up the number of bases with AFRICOM and the drone, you know, drone strikes in Somalia and U.S. intervention in Somalia, as well as the drone bases and expanding AFRICOM. And, yeah, he gave this, you know, progressive veneer. I mean, Africans celebrate when Obama was elected and yet he completely stabbed them in the back uh, by by moving toward the recolonization of the continent. So uh, it's the same kind of thing with Kamala Harris. I mean, they think she's on their side and she's of African descent. And she visits the, because she was in Ghana and she went to the slave emporium that had slaves. She, you know, uh, speaks eloquently about how, how horrible the slave system is. And yet she's there and who sanctioned these new AFRICOM training exercises in Ghana. Uh, that are going on to give more military aid to the Ghanaian government, uh, which is following an economic formula that's against what Kremlin and Nkrumah uh, advocated for, and that he's selling out to foreign corporate interests, uh, Ghana's economy, in part because they're so heavily in debt, as you pointed out, they're kind of weak and desperate, so they just, uh, any bone you can throw them, they take that can alleviate their debt, uh, even if it means really... Uh, selling out their economy to foreign interests. And you have the same thing as we discussed in Zambia. Yeah, it was her grandfather was an advisor to Kenneth Kaunda because uh, her grandfather was an Indian civil servant. And there are a lot of Indians in Zambia. And Kenneth Kaunda was a socialist a Pan-Africanist who's very close with Kwame Nkrumah and adopted a similar vision of government. And he, he had led the anti-colonial movement against the British uh, in Zambia. And he nationalized Zambia's copper mining, uh, uh, many of the copper mines. And he built a lot of, he built up Zambia. Like when I went there, uh, there are a lot of, like he built the University of Zambia with the revenue from copper. And there are a lot of books in the library only from the 60s and 70s when he was the president. And they could actually fund things like, you know, books for the library and schools and and they said, the people said, you know, Konda and the, uh, those leaders were very popular. When I talked to people, they said, you know, they built the country, uh, Nkrumah, and uh, and I met some Ghanaians in, in Zambia, and that's what they said. The Nkrumah built our country, and, and Konda built our country. Uh, so, but the model that the government has pursued since, since 1991, where the neoliberal economic model, where they just, uh, they, they, uh, basically privatize all the economy and they impose very low taxes to the benefit of foreign multinational corporations with yeah, scooped in, bought up uh, the copper mining. And they, as I mentioned, they pay very little tax and the services are abhorrent in Zambia. You go, you see the schools have no proper windows and there's not proper school facility. The hospitals are, you know, women go to give birth and, and the woman died because uh, I mean, not every case, but it happens much, much more than here. They don't have good uh, hospitals in general. Uh, the road network is, is dilapidated in many places. They don't have good 
public transport uh, on down. So, I mean, it's it's totally antithetical to the, the kind of leaders that the U.S. is is promoting. Because the U.S. support this guy Hachilema, and he says, "I want to." Uh, bring in more companies and get more boost copper production. But he's trying to lure foreign companies by lowering the tax rate. And so the Zambian don't get anything. He may be boosting copper production, but the money's going out of the country. It's it's still like a neo-colonial economy. And that's when the Krumah warned about. And that's why I say in the article that Harris betrayed her grandfather by she's providing a nice face. You know, she comes across nice and she's a woman and, a black woman, and she's friendly, and uh, you know, and she's supposedly one of them, but she's selling them out. Like this agreement at the Democracy Summit, they're basically you know, selling off their cobalt and, and losing the rights over it. So it's just like what the whites did to the Native Indians and what the European did when they came originally to Africa, that they took control of their whole economy and country, and they tricked the people into thinking that they were you know, nice, but they weren't. See, that's what I think of this as a kind of trickery. So earlier yeah. I said, I feel like free trade is sometimes a euphemism for mercantilism. It depends if you know which side you're going to end up on a free trade transaction. You can call it free trade all you want, um, knowing the inevitable outcome. And as soon as that outcome might reverse, like with China or something, you all of a sudden have a different ideology. But I feel similarly about the expression to privatize something. So, uh, you know, libertarians will alert and think that's a good, you know, a good thing. But I have found that when they talk about privatization, a lot of times they are talking about something that is 100% paid for by the government, generated, um, the, all the revenue is completely tax-generated, like the human rights industry or the defense industry, and then you have the private companies who are making these contracts with them. And that's not the same as free market competition and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like, similarly, I've seen... Um, Kamala Harris at the, I think it was the something of the Americas. It's like a, a, a big thing. I don't know if it happens every year, but it was out here when um, the last time uh, she was there. I don't know if Biden was there or not, but it's this organization of American states and a lot of them are South American, Latin American. And she was there. And if you looked at what she was actually promoting, what she was promoting was she wanted banking in these countries. She wanted U.S. banking to be in these countries to bank poor people to, you know, I hate this whole movement to like, you know, the unbanked, you got to bank them. And then, but what she was doing was really promoting their, their free enterprise system, uh, and free trade as just a way to implant us or global corporations in these countries and not really open it up to competition that they had any chance of participating in. And I, and I'm, I think it is, more weighted towards economics and trade than a lot of times we think of these politics. And I, and this is the last thing I'll say is that I discovered that when I was listening to these Russian pranksters convince um, Lindsey Graham that they were a Turkish ambassador, but they were really just pranksters. And you hear Lindsey Graham saying, like, we don't care about anything, but we need you to sign off on these trade agreements. That's it. That's all we care about. That's all we want. We need to enforce this trade agreement now and it and it made me think that it really as much as they want us to think it's about something um more nuanced it's really just about like uh financial exploitation and you know resources and all of that mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I would agree, yeah. And a lot of time, yeah, they're just pushing U.S. corporate interests. And, you know, that's, I mean, we have a problem here if, uh, you know, if China or Japan, and sometimes it's, it's you know, some politicians exploit this or become overly hysterical and they claim, oh, the Chinese are taking over our economy. The Jap- In the 80s, they were the scare about Japan. I think a lot of it was embellished. Uh, in the case of the U.S., I mean, the U.S. Is a, uh, overall has its problem, but it's a strong economy where, where Americans own most things. Uh, but, I mean, if, if that problem grew, it would be a legitimate problem here. So it's really the same there. Yeah, they don't want their economy being dominated by a foreign country, and that would require protective measures, uh, whether high tariffs or nationalization that make a lot of sense from their point of view. But then those governments are then demonized as, uh, as socialists or communists. And that's really self-serving because the U.S. just wants to push U.S. corporate interests. So it's really all about self-interest and it's a kind of cynical game that's being played. And that's why maybe yeah, the ruling elite prefers these kind of front men, where, you know, because I think Trump alienated a lot of people like in Africa or developing world and he called them like shithole countries and he disparaged the people. So he was a bad ambassador. You know, people saw that this is a bad guy. But like a Kamala Harris or an Obama come across a very suave way and they come across as very friendly toward the people of those countries. But they'll stab him in the back. Look what Obama did with Gaddafi. They, they, Gaddafi embraced him. Even Gaddafi was fooled because there was a meeting, I think it was at the UN, and it was the first meeting where Obama was the president of the United States, and Gaddafi went over and gave him a warm hug, and then within a year, he was the one to preside over his death. And as you say, the CIA may have given the intelligence so that they could find him and, and uh, lynch him. Brutally, murder lynch, him brutally. The 19th century lynchings of a foreign statesman who is incredibly popular among his own people. Imagine that he's being lynched. And then you have the Secretary of State, as you pointed out, gloating about yes. death, uh, let alone any man, but a man who was a, a, a well-respected leader in Africa. Because when I was in Zambia in 2007, Gaddafi came to Zambia, and he was treated like king. And they, But they had genuine respect for him. Uh, because of a lot of the policies uh, described that he was undertaking to try and benefit Africa. So here's a, a well-respected African leader, uh, and they're gloating over his lynching after Obama you know, stabbed him in the back. So, Yeah, the, the atrocities that came out of Libya and mo- foremost of that one just shock me, really horrify me. I would also point out that a lot of the actual current things that are happening are related to this new green economy, and it includes like copper and cobalt after, out of Zambia, I think, bauxite out of Ghana, um, the lithium out of Bolivia, I think. Am I recalling that correctly? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's not really, it, it's like they use the term clean energy, but it's not. I mean, it's very dirty. If you go to Zambia, it's poisoning. Like, I, I went to that copper belt area, and there's the pollution is just horrible in the air and in the water. Uh, so it, there's nothing clean about that at all. 
I even noticed that they are already, so the ultimate plan, I did a bunch of stuff on 15 minute cities. They're really trying to, you know, this is where I go more towards the conspiracy stuff where it's beyond like the simple dollars and cents of trade and um, the imperialism as a, you know, for the global corporations that they want to lock people down. They want these digital cities. They want these 15 minute cities. They don't want people having the kind of mobility and communication through physical transportation and actually uh, communing with each other. And that part of that is that they are already talking about, if you go as deep as I do on some of this research, eliminating electric vehicles even so that they want no vehicles, but they're doing the stepping stone, which I might even consider to be just an interim step of of like uh, financial exploitation, you know, just like, like just creating this. It's almost like we could be literally at the end of of economic booms and they create these artificial demands, these artificial industries that are, um, you know, an interim period, but that ultimately they'll do all this. They'll create all this pollution. They'll create all these lithium ion batteries. They'll create all these electric vehicles, which are hard to dispose of. And then they're, and they're already using that as an excuse to discontinue them. And it just seems so sinister on many levels. I doubt you've gone that far, but I just, I see in this, you know, it's already pregnant with its own demise, but it'll cause a lot of damage in the meanwhile. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I mean, the alternative, I think it is clear that, you know, fossil fuel are uh, destructive. Uh, I'm not an expert on, you know, climate science. Uh, maybe the warnings are too alarmist. But I think there are, you know, clear uh, damaging consequences of fossil fuel as the leak from the pipelines. Uh, um, but, yeah, this alternative is being billed as this uh, magic solution when it's not. And I, I think your points are good, that there is tremendous uh, uh, pitfalls, uh, environmental consequences from this supposed clean energy revolution. And that should be weighed and debated. I, I want to uh, wrap on, and if you have anything that you want to add, that's great. But I did want to point out, and I put this in the show notes, that you, one of your sources was the International People's Tribunal on U.S. Imperialism. I'd never heard of that before. Is that, you know, is that is that new to you? Are you aware of their work? Can you tell me anything about that? Uh, it was new to me. They've had these hearings on sanctions. Yeah, you can look up their website. I think they have one on Sudan. Uh, and that's coming up, uh, I believe it could be this weekend. And yeah, so they, they, I think they've hosted like tribunals on sanctions. I think they're, they're focused, they're doing a whole program right now on sanctions and how that affects, uh, you know, developing world countries and how it's really a cruel and illegal policy. And I guess they want to hold uh, American leaders accountable for adopting those sanctions. And I found them very informative because they bring people from the different country. Like I did an article about Zimbabwe, and I really didn't know a lot about it. And I had been to uh, Zambia, as I mentioned on the show, in 2007, and I saw a lot of uh, Zimbabwean refugees at that time. But at that time, I didn't understand that they were there because I mean they were in Zambia because uh, the uh, you know currency, the, the hyperinflation, their currency was almost worthless, so they were coming to try and sell things in Zambia so they can make Zambian money, which was much more valuable. At that time, I didn't understand that it was a lot of the economic problems in Zimbabwe stemmed from the U.S. sanctions that were adopted in 2001. I learned a tremendous amount from attending 
the People's Tribunal on Zimbabwe, and they had all these Zimbabwean speakers who went into the history and politics and really enhanced my understanding. So, And then there, uh, there was one on Libya, and they bring a lot of speakers from those countries, and we don't get exposed to those voices very often. And that's what I learned about Gaddafi, uh, Saeed Gaddafi and that many Libyans wanted him come back as the next leader. And they said that's why they're not allowing these elections to go forward. They keep delaying them. Or tr so I would highly recommend it. Yeah, if you look up to their website, uh, again, they have one, I believe, on Sudan is the next one that I, I want to attend because I, I don't know a lot about Sudan. So I'm just hoping to learn a bit about the country and more from you know people of that country. And I don't know much about U.S. policy, but often it turns out to be pretty bad. I think Sudan might have been in Wesley Clark's list of seven countries. Yeah, I do know that the U.S. wanted to get rid of, you know, Omar Bashir was tied more with China. And so they demonized him and they accused him of genocide in Darfur. But from my understanding, it's more a complex conflict. And they, they wanted the well. The U.S. was supporting the SPLA, Sudan People's Liberation Army. They presented them, and it was a, a Christian-Muslim battle. Bashir was Muslim. The SPLA were Christians, so some of the Christian groups are rallying behind them. But they committed a lot of terrorist activity. And then the U.S. pushed for the secession of South Sudan so they can control the oil in South Sudan. But once the new country was formed, the SPLA went to war with its rivals. So it hadn't worked out very well. And then there had been some other maneuvers I don't fully understand. So I'm, I'm hoping to learn from this conference. Uh, I believe it's on the 14th. And if you look up their web, uh, their website, they have other countries like Syria, Venezuela, all countries that are affected by U.S. sanctions. They're doing programs. So I think you could learn a lot from those programs. I'll put those in the show notes. And yes, I've always thought sanctions were cowardly, inhumane, and really acts of war. That yeah. that these people act like it's a moral high ground to you know starving people is is just slow murder. It's not any, it's not some uh, high road. And they act like it's an act of virtue. So that's an interesting resource. I always so are you, Jeremy. I always love talking to you. I was so excited to see the Africa stuff because I have taken an interest in it. And I think very few few people really address that. And you obviously come from a place of. Uh, a lot of expertise and experience. So I have your articles in the show notes, which will be on monicasdeepdives.com. Um, this show will be up shortly on Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. And with that, I would say goodbye. Thank you so much, Jeremy. And thank you all for listening.